It's me, D.B. Spitzer, and over here, as always, is Farmer Dave. So, Dave, how are you doing today? I am well. Nice to hear. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well. Uh, Nicked my hand Uh, with the head. You may have just heard, but Ralph the Rooster is doing well. Good, good. I nicked my hand with a hedge trimmer today, but other than that, I have all of my fingers and toes after the 4th of July. But then again... We're not allowed to uh, light off fireworks around here, so hey. <laughs> Especially yes. uh, last year, uh, everything was on fire. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. So, yeah, no, we're doing good out here in Oleander. Uh, we hope all of you out in podcasting land are doing great, that you're having a good commute, having a good breakfast, having a good bowel movement, whatever you're doing. I hope you're making it the best. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Dave. Uh, what, what did we want to talk about today? Well, we are going to be talking about the ABCs, or the A's, of the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh-huh. So uh, we're just going to sh- jump straight to Az- Azathoth, right? So we're going to start with lesser-known ones, okay. Aboth and Abith. Oh. And you know what I think is one of the greatest shames? That in the 40s and the 50s, they didn't do Abbott and Costello meet Cthulhu. Yes. Because I would just love to have, you know, Lou Costello yell, Hey, Abbott! <laughs> For the four of you that got that joke, you're welcome. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was actually thinking uh, that <laughs> Abbott, and, Abbott and Costello meet the seven gish. <laughs> hey, Abbas! <laughs> oh, we'll get into that later. Everyone, hey, this is People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, and we're your hosts, DB and Farmer Dave. And uh, yeah, we're we're just going to be talking about some Cthulhu Mythos stuff. Uh, we're going to be talking to some people today, Dave. Who are we talking to? So we're talking today mm-hmm. to John Hook. And Seth Sorkowski, and I apologize, Seth, I mispronounced that, but I also mispronounce DB's name once in a while, too. <laughs> and they are, they have a podcast, and Seth is probably best known for his YouTube channels about the role-playing games, including the, um, the Cthulhu Mythos and Call of Cthulhu-related games. Cool. Very cool. So, yeah, we're going to talk to them. We're going to talk about Abith and Aboth. But first, before we get into that, let's go to Dave's Corner. This is Dave's Corner of the podcast. It is awesome and it's gonna go fast. It's not the interview part. It's not the part where DB 
how are you doing this week, Dave? I am well. Yeah? Uh, anything yeah. Anything new to report? Well, so, you know, you know, it had the 4th of July, right? Uh-huh. And so normally places have sale on red, white, and blue paint. You sure. know, paint stores yeah. do. But our here in um, in Oleander, we only have one paint store. Paint It Black? And it's called Paint It Black. And you can get any color you want as long as it's black. Yes. Uh, so they basically had um, – so you could get a sale on black paint that had red, white, or blue lids. Oh, okay. 15% off just because the lids was red, white, or blue. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, everyone, that's it for Dave's Corner of the Podcast. Thank you so much. Dave's Hey everyone, it's uh, it's that part where we talk about Cthulhu stuff, where Dave and I talk. Dave, we're talking about a Bith, and we're talking about a Both. A Bith is probably uh, wh- wh- which do you think is a little bit more approachable? Uh, oh, actually, you know what? Let's let's get a Bith out of the way first. What do we know about a Bith? I know that if you have Chaosium's big giant books either the uh the sixth or the seventh edition called cthulhu big giant book malleus monsterium which is you know the the basically the mythos bestiary with everything yes abyss isn't in either versions Hmm. which sort of surprised me you know this is a huge you know book that's almost as big as if not bigger than the the basic rules and there is no Abith. So, so Abith is one of those names I think people recognize. Oh, I, you know, you say Abith, and they recognize it. That's a, a mythos creature, but there's really not, <coughs> excuse me, not a lot of information on that. Yeah. And it was, I think, created by Lynn Carter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. That's, you know, uh, a fact that's very little i think he's more one of those deities that are just sort of mentioned in the background um but i know he comes in uh, i believe the horrors of the ga- uh, gallery first actually abith is a place it's uh oh, it's a it's, it's a planet that re- revolves around the seven stars behind zoth yeah it, it sounds like it would be a, uh, a mythos deity, but so does Zoth. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that. So, 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 no wonder it does not appear in the Monstrum. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Even... I was thinking that it was like one of those living planetoids. Oh, but yeah, it, but it's a like place. Granok or Groth or what? I can't remember that one. The blinking planet or. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. Cthulhu mythos is a is a big, big, big thing, and. Uh, yeah, no, what we know about Abyth is uh, there's metallic brains that are wise to the ultimate secrets of the universe. And, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? Uh, Thousand Faces guy. Uh, uh, pe- uh, people criticize how I pronounce it, so. <laughs> Narlethotep? <laughs> uh, that's, that's one of the approved, uh, that's one of the approved versions to, to, um, 
to say his name. Uh, sure, I, I believe it is. I believe it is. Yeah, no, um, so that's a Bith. What about a Both? Who's a Both, and uh, where can we find a Both? So he is a little bit more, and he is, of course, in the different books. Mm-hmm. And he first appears, to best of my knowledge, in uh, Clark Ashton Smith's Seven Geases. Yes. Yeah, resides uh, in the cavern of Yaqua beneath Mount Vormith Address. Yes. And he is kind of a filthy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the, the, uh, the, uh, what, progenitor of putridness, the, 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 <laughs> the sultan of slime, <laughs> the Ayatollah of rock and roll. No, <laughs> but, yes, the, <laughs> but yeah, the no. czar of the tar. Ooh, yeah, constantly spitting forth its progeny, which, uh, half formed, malformed, all kinds of things, uh, spewing forth. I mean, any any uh, mythos creatures that are sole inhabitants of Earth more than likely are spawns of a both that made it out of Mount Vormith of Dreth is what is my headcanon when it comes to the Cthulhu mythos. It's one of these things. It's like so long ago that predates man, that predates the civilization prior to man, and maybe even, you know, like multi multiple epochs back to, to a deep time that another civilization totally existed and that's that's that what we're talking about with like mount vormith address and um this part of the myth cycle that involves clark ashton smith i don't know i love i love this story and i want to talk about the whole thing but we're only talking about aboth this time or abhoth i guess maybe we should say abhoth okay (laughs) what are your thoughts dave and so uh, one thing about Aboth is it is one of the bad guys in in the board game Arkham Horror, and so the first time and I the first time I played Arkham Horror, I'm pretty sure it was a Aboth mm-hmm. that was the bad guy, and, and it's like if if you're fighting the you know it's that's the one you want to draw because it's like the least powerful one, mm-hmm. and and as I remember the the one of the guy who sort of won the game for us blew it up with dynamite. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, so, so uh, as I remember, it, it's an easy sort of big boss to win, comparatively speaking, in the old uh, Arkham Horror game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I – oh, man, that is a fun game. I haven't played that in probably about 10 years. Yeah, it's probably been about as long as I've played it. I had a copy that I got from uh, my my friend Andrew Grace, who's been on the show numerous times, got me a copy back in 2010 because his brothers both worked for Fantasy Flight Games in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, or just Minnesota. I was like trying to remember if it was Minneapolis or somewhere else. Anyway, it's just a Minnesota. And I got a copy of it uh, that Drew got. I don't know if he got it for free, or but it was a birthday present, and I was very happy for it. Unfortunately, I left it in a town I moved away from in 2012, and the people that I left it with, they're like, do you want it back? And I'm like, that's going to cost so much to mail it to me. I have it as a a wedding present, and they did, and they still play it, and they love it. So, you know, I I was happy just to re-gift it on, but, oh man, I love that game. Uh, If if anyone from Fantasy Flight is listening, we'd love a copy, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll... 
No. Uh, if anyone is listening from Fantasy Flight Games, don't you don't have to send us a copy, but we do love this game, and we highly recommend anyone. If you haven't picked up Arkham Horde, check it out. Really check it out. Uh, Fantasy Flight Games, I, I have you played any of their other uh, mythosy games or expansion packs of any of that? So, so I have a big fan, and this is going to be heresy to some people. Uh-huh. I am a big fan of Fantasy Flight's Star Wars. You know, I'm coming over a guy who loved the D6. Uh-huh. Uh, I love their role-playing games, and, and they're kind of put that all on hold, which makes me sort of sad. And I'm yeah. hoping that maybe they'll take it take it back up. Sure. Uh, but the other, so I play a lot of their Star Wars games. Uh, one of their uh, my favorite games from them uh-huh. is uh, oh, uh, the Outer Rim. Okay. Which you basically make a living as a bounty hunter or a, a smuggler or many other different things, being some of the more famous uh, Star Wars characters. Uh, but no, yeah, I like. Uh, I, I'm really excited. They have that Genesis system, which they're very hinting towards that they were going to do a. A, a horror slash mythos and if you base it on their board games of course they are uh but i think everything from them sort of got put on hold because of covid hmm. yeah yeah i probably <laughs> yeah so a both anything else we can say about a both abhoth um you know i think he is one of i, I mean not as maybe as much as a bought as Clark Ashton Smith mm-hmm. being you know one of the three musketeers with Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard so I think there is a lot more sort of you're going to see a bath in more of the the stories as a tip of the hat people writing stories mm-hmm. uh, to uh, you know Clark Ashton Smith sure and my other thought was you know you know, we as human beings perceive them as this disgusting thing, right? Uh, yeah. But, you know, he might be, you know, his racist version of a germaphobe. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those definitely eye of the beholder situations where, you know, we see them as this big old giant sort of sludge pile. But, you know, I'm sure that if his there are female boss out there they think that this guy's got it going on he he cleans up pretty well yeah no um as as like uh great old ones go or outer gods or whichever he is uh a boss a boss has his stuff down a boss has a place he he has his own place uh takes care of care of his kids the best that he can which is pretty much let them wander the caves of underneath mount vormitha dreth in the caverns of yaqua i mean that's that's like what a both's thing is is to make monsters i mean yeah no i mean a both is killing it and um i was thinking about is like how would i use a both in a game and i would put a both in a game secretly or like you know it's like a delta green game uh you have people that have to go to like say afghanistan or turkey or something you have like all these like weird little monsters that are like crawling out of a cavern or something like that maybe not maybe not delta green necessarily but some sort of like a monster busting kind of thing or maybe you're just like i don't know 
doing routines somewhere. Anyway, for some reason or another, little small creatures are crawling out of the ground somewhere, and people are having to hunt them. What happens? You go further in, the caverns get larger, the monsters get bigger, finally, there's Abhoth. That's how I think you could do. <laughs> Just like the most stripped down, like, okay, this is how you use Abhoth. <laughs> so, so I think I'd use Abhoth in a... I think I would use him in basically a dungeon crawl. Yeah. But there's two lev- levels. Okay. There's that level that the players can get in, but beneath that, there's sort of the river of Abhoth. So they don't deal with him directly, but they everywhere they go, even though this this room seems clean mm-hmm. and pristine. They have this feeling of, of ickiness and creepiness and Ooh. there's like things climbing on them and they're like scratching their skin and they, they can't see anything. And he sends all like all of these creatures and a both basically communicates telepathy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he can get into their mind, but you know, fortunately for the players, yeah, they wouldn't be able to physically get to him, but he can communicate to them in a, a mental psychic level. Ooh, I like that. I like that. I was like thinking, oh, how would we use a bit in a uh, in a in in a game if it's it's a world that's like so far away beyond Zoth? You know, it's like how would you? It's like the only thing I can think of is like maybe um, kind of like uh, just a reference. Like, you have a character in your story who starts, you know, n- not a main character, but just to show that there's, like, some sort of, like, influence going on. Maybe Naralethhotep is, like, somehow influencing people in some way. And if if Naralethhotep is just vacationing or imprisoned uh, there, maybe Naralethhotep is just, like, dreaming and, you know, not even necessarily thinking about it, but just sending out kind of, like... Little, little, little uh, brain worms to everyone about what's going on, or you know, maybe purposely, since this is Naralethotep, and everyone kind of makes him uh, the Cthulhu mythos equivalent of uh, the devil from the devil went down to Georgia, like you know, Naralethotep's just looking to wheel and deal in human souls for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. It's the interpretation of Naralethotep that has never made much sense to me. But I mean, you could you could do that. <laughs> Sorry. So what I think I would do is is maybe not the planet. Sure, you might sure. make it as a reference and stuff, but the, what what I find it's intriguing uh-huh. is the the these machine brains. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as I know, there are no stats. That's why I was sort of looking to see if there were stats for yeah. the the machine brain because somehow I was thinking that they were like all linked together and got like deity level. Ooh. So I think you could do that. Make a Biff a, a, a deity level. Or let's say that Amigo is just flying down and he, he sees the planet and he picks up one of these machine brains mm-hmm. and then he's flying off to his next assignment on Earth and it's getting heavy and his fingers slip and it falls through, comes through the atmosphere and it comes like a, a meteorite. And so the, the party's going looking for this strange meteorite, and it turns out it's this machine brain. But you also have this this angry um, uh, amigo looking for trying to find back his you know machine brain that uh, he is supposed to deliver to his boss on Earth. Whoa, that's awesome! That's a good one, Dave. Wow, that's yeah. You should you should write the adventures in this on on this podcast. <laughs> 
All right. Hey, everyone, thank you so much for listening to us talk about the Cthulhu Mythos. Up next, we have an interview that we talked about before. We're going to get to that, and then we will get to the final part of the show. All right. We'll see you after the break, everyone. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Well, again, we are at my favorite part of the People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, the part where we get to bring in guests and, and interview them. Uh, This is Dave or Farmer Dave. I'm still going through that personality change as we change the title of the show. But today I'm excited because for the first time, I've actually got two guests. And that is John Hook and Seth. And I'm sorry, I hear your name all the time. But Seth, can I have you pronounce uh, your last name so I don't butcher it on air? Uh, Skorkowski. Thank you very much. I apologize for that. And People who know uh, or listen to the show know that I like to have guests sort of introduce themselves. But, John, I thought maybe you could introduce Seth, and Seth, you could introduce John today. I think that's a fantastic idea. Uh, I would like to go on record and debunk the rumors that I've been seeing online. Seth is not 
a life model replicant robot. <laughs> Nobody uh, has one, right? He does have one for the uh, possible assassinations that may be, uh, uh, you know, out on his life. Uh, so that life model decoy is is for the assassination attempts. But I'm confident that we are speaking to the uh, flesh and blood Seth Skorkowski. Seth has uh, over 30 years, believe it or not, behind the game screen, judging and running D&D, Traveler, Call of Cthulhu, probably Toon, I'm not real sure. <laughs> um, he has a an amazing YouTube video series with the really deep and clever title of Oh, that's right. It's just Seth Skorkowski. Uh, but just look up Seth Skorkowski on YouTube. You're going to see some amazing videos where he talks about uh, reviews. He has uh, how-to videos. And uh, he even has some really cool things about testing dice, right, and how to make a, a, a chicken foot in order to uh, uh, de-curse uh, de your dice, right? Seth Skorkowski is a YouTube uh uh star so and you check guys him probably out. did not hear that but right by my window right when you said that about the chicken foot ralph the rooster was like what <laughs> yeah i i heard something in the background um i should let you know I and, and so you recently, gave him the so i might occasionally yourself to make sure that it's really him yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah the uh we had to do that um the thing uh, blood test to make sure that uh, <laughs> Seth was real. But uh, yes, Seth Skorkowski, my partner on the Modern Mythos. <laughs> Excellent. And Seth, did you like to introduce John? Well, uh, I'm, I'm mostly sure John is, is real, but uh, uh, my partner, John Hook, has been uh, well, gaming since uh, the, the, the late 70s. With uh, mm. the Holmes edition D and D box set, when he was probably too young to begin playing, uh, which then spawned off into very many other games throughout the years. Uh, he started Call of Cthulhu. Uh, he has a big soft spot for comic book games. Uh, he's also a massive fan of the alien role playing game. He has. Uh, written adventures for multiple systems, so many, in fact, he cannot name them all uh, because I've tried to verify which ones he wrote, and he's, he can't even remember. He's he's that prolific. Uh, he is the experienced podcaster between the two of us with, uh, I believe it was, was it over 10 years with the Miskatonic University podcast, John? Nine years, yeah. Not, oh, oh, you were so close to getting that 10-year so award. Ah. And um, that is John. So with over 40 years of experience, is he's acting like my 30 means something to him. <laughs> so, 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 so between the three of us, we have over 110 years worth of role playing. <laughs> that should give us like 10% off in Denny's. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. And so um, I really appreciate you guys introducing yourself. And, you know, I want to talk about role-playing, but, you know, I also want to talk about the mythos. And so I'm sort of curious, what was your introduction to Lovecraft and, and the Cthulhu mythos? Seth, you take that first. Okay. Uh, well, I was 
uh, ridiculously late to it uh, comparatively. I, uh, you know, I first became aware of of the mythos uh, through, you know, the the plushies and you know going to a comic shop and seeing the the Miskatonic shirts or you know uh, vote Cthulhu, I vote for the lesser of two evils sort of thing. Um, however, I didn't become interested in Lovecraft or the mythos or, or do anything serious with it uh, until the uh, Call of Cthulhu silent film that mm. the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did. And that was when... Which it, is amazing. It, it really clicked. Like, it was like, oh, wow, I need to know more about this. And then I uh, quickly began consuming uh, a large amount of, of Lovecraft. But, uh, you know, that was probably... 2009 that that happened so i'm i'm definitely the green one um when it comes to that because a lot of people will assume i've been doing it my whole life and i haven't i'm i'm still technically the the new kid which should be inspiration for you know people out there listening saying you know i've only been doing this for a couple of years well you know what it won't take too long you're going to be up to seth level <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly um i was introduced to uh hp lovecraft and uh the cthulhu mythos through the role-playing game i just i hadn't heard about the the literature or knew anything about it and um in 81 uh my best friend uh he got the first edition box set of the role-playing game and I was just utterly fascinated by it. And, it, and I believe it reprints um, the Call of Cthulhu story mm. in it. Um, and, you know, I was like reading and learning about the game um, as he was he was reading and learning about it. And he was always the, the keeper. And I was I was always an investigator. It, it was quite some time before I got to get to the other side of the of the screen. Uh, but, you know, I would. Uh, read the the rule book and all the the material that that came with it in the box set, and uh, I was fascinated that the these adventures and the the whole concept of this role playing game that it was uh, based on an author and and stories right yeah uh, and at the time I thought it was just one author I thought it was only Lovecraft and I, I didn't even know about the the Lovecraft circle and all these other authors that kind of contributed to the uh, you know that fabric that we call the mythos now and uh, so I went out and you know this was back in the days with uh, uh, giant indoor malls and you know B Dalton books and Walden books inside the malls and so I went to Walden Books and and found uh, some of those uh, Valentine uh, editions of the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft collected uh, stories and just started consuming those. And uh, it was awesome. I loved it. You know, no, thank you guys for sharing that. Uh, I'll tell you, my personal experience is almost the same one you're going to have almost every middle-aged bearded guy who is on a panel in Oregon about Lovecraft. And I discovered when I was 13, my local library had two copies of uh, Arkham House books. One was, couldn't even tell you the titles. One was the beige and the other was the burgundy cover. But the thing that introduced me actually, sort of surprisingly, was my mom. 
she checked them out, read them, and said, hey, this is something I think you'd be interested with, and one of the many things that I'm grateful for her for. for. Oh, that is awesome. That's awesome. It's, I, wow. I do like that when when parents you know, bring kids into fandom of some sort. Uh, my mom got me into Star Trek. Uh, Excellent. And, and, you know, she was watching Star Trek when it was, you know, first aired. I was born during the second season of the original Trek. Yeah. Um, and uh, and even, you know, I even know uh, what episode uh, first aired a few days after I was born. Um, so journey to Babel. Uh, and so it was just, yeah, it's neat when parents can do that and, and foster that kind of growth in their kids. I try and do it with mine. Yeah, no, and ab- absolutely. Absolutely. So got a kind of a, a little different type of question for you. What is maybe, um, what is some of your favorite stories and, and why either as, inspiration for role-playing game or just personal i love to read um i i love uh color out of space it is an amazing alien story the uh, the creature falls from space you know in this meteor it is so far inhuman and i don't think i've ever seen uh, an author tackle something so eloquently as far as being an alien presence, you know, almost every alien creature that, um, that we, re- you know, read about in stories or see in, uh, on, on film, of some sort, you know, big screen, small screen, um, you know, they're, they're, carbon-based and they have limbs and they have animalistic motivations or maybe intelligent motivations. I mean, pointy ears or anything, yeah. right. You know, you know, here it is in the, you know, I'm sure, I, I don't know when he wrote it. My assumption is, you know, late twenties, early thirties, but Lovecraft wrote this story about a creature that is so different from the cellular level that it doesn't have a, uh, a, a physical biological form it, it it really mimics more of like a disease but almost is it intelligent maybe i mean it seems to be doing you know it's uh instinctual animalistic kind of things it, it's trying to adapt to its environment and it's you know corrupting crops and corrupting animals right it's poisoning the crops and it's it's twisting and and mutating uh as radiation you know and mutating animals and and everything and then that the the uh the gardener family uh you know go insane and and each of them die in a in a horrible way and then you know finally the thing you know has its life cycle and it just kind of erupts and you know is that is that it escaping or is it it's you know, offspring escaping. I, I don't know. You know, you don't know. You know, did did something get left behind, and you know, offspring get launched into space, or did it just you know kind of go low orbit and land somewhere else on the planet? Who knows? But it's something that's so utterly alien. I'm just like, man, that just it took a lot of uh, imagination, I think, to to design a story like that. I love it. I think it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And it's also my understanding, the story that Lovecraft was the happiest with. Oh, I did not know that. That, that he, he, he actually felt happier 
and that this was more about this type of tale that he wanted to tell than anything else he'd ever written. I know that. What about you, Seth? What's your favorite story? Um, for me, it's the shadow over Innsmouth. Um, I, uh, I I kind of I just enjoy the the town sinking into degradation, the the you know the cult as it takes over, and then the sense of paranoia and the chase and all of all of that. I just I just find that one just the most enjoyable to read. So I've I've revisited that one uh, definitely the most. Definitely and. Uh, you know, I, I love that, and I think that's one of the stories that he is best known for. And, and, and I'm going to be a little bit of a heretic here, and I'm going to say my – well, if you ask me this question, it changes kind of day to day. It's like, you know, ask me what my favorite food is. Well, today it's pizza. Tomorrow it's, you know, hamburgers. You know, it changes a little bit day to day. But I think in general, my favorite is actually a Robert E. Howard story which is the black stone. Oh, and cool. Okay. I, I love that story, how it sort of ties the other universes. It's the first use of Arkham Asylum. And, and I love this concept that this, this big stone pillar, well, it's actually the top of a steeple of a giant building underground. So, and, and I, and I love Lovecraft. Don't take away, but the, Howard is always connected with me the way he writes. I always, I, I just love, Howard's writing. Yeah, he was awesome. He was so good. I love Pigeons from Hell. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever seen, now we're diverging, and but have you ever seen there is a 1950 or early 60s TV show that did an, a Pigeon for Hell? No. Kind of like, um, oh, it's a, and like, kind of like Twilight Zone, but it was, and uh, Boris Karloff was played the Rod Serling part. Um, let me, but uh, I was on Monster Kid Radio about a year ago where we just talked about this one episode. Um, and it's just, it, you can see it on YouTube. It's amazing where, especially the creature at the end, they make some dramatic choices to kind of keep it out of focus. So it's still kind of scary despite, you know, this 19... 60s black and white twilight zone aesthetics but it is amazing so and you, and you can watch it on youtube but it's a it's a great episode you're right it's a great story so i got kind of a switch up a question here for you okay. what if somebody came to you and said you have don't have to worry about copyrights you don't have to worry about money you're going to be in charge of any mythos property or project it's completely up to you. What would it be? What's your dream mythos project? Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, if I could do anything with the mythos, hmm, hmm, I don't know. I feel like I need to think. Of, have you got an answer, Seth? Anything that I would do would probably be in the the realms of an artifact. Um, you know, I uh, or uh, a a a place, you know, uh, traveling to a place um, versus uh, you know, just about anything else. That'd be interesting. So, so like, like a, a, you traveling to some place and documenting it, or yeah, like um, so. You know, for example, next year uh, there's a, a convention called Eldritch Con, and one of their 
um, things that they're doing is it begins the two-day ride aboard the Orient Express. Oh. And, and the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Historical Society is doing a an event, like I, I guess it's some sort of LARP, on the mm. Orient Express going oh, from awesome. Paris to Bucharest. Uh, so, like, well, that that was already on my list of what I would want. <laughs> so, but I'm already getting it. So, well, that's that's amazing. Yeah, you know, I think that if I could do anything and make it, and I don't know how to make a movie, so I wouldn't be able to do it. But if I could get something maybe in the motion, I would love to see the Hound as sort of a Hammer style movie set between the wars. And, oh, and maybe that's, that's cool. maybe that's just me. I probably could, I couldn't produce it. I couldn't direct it. Probably couldn't write it. Maybe that's just my wish list that I wish somebody would do for me. Yeah. You know, uh, the news just came out about how, uh, Lovecraft country from, uh, that was on HBO has been canceled. So there will not be a second season. And, um, you know, it disappoints me because the, uh, the book, the Matt Ruff book is, is amazing. Amazing. And I read the book first. And then, so while watching the series, it landed a little flat for me. So, you know, yeah. it wasn't yeah. the best thing I ever saw on TV. It wasn't the worst thing I ever saw on TV, but it just was kind of middle of the road. And I can't help but wonder if they had made a better effort to uh, produce something that was tighter and maybe a little closer to the source material, it would have been a, uh, a better, a, you know, received better. And we would have had another season because I was expecting thinking that, you know, this would be a, uh, um, you know, it's HBO. It'll be multiple series, you know, multiple seasons. Yeah. And, and the way that the, the Matt Ruff book is written, I thought season one might be one, two, or maybe up to three chapters of the of the book, but you know, zoomed in and with even more detail, so that it took a full season to do three chapters, and yeah. then season two might be three more chapters, and you know, you could have done it that way, and that I think would have made it a much more successful uh, project. But as it is now, they, you know, they did what they, they did their version of the entire book. And now that's it. We're all done. I, um, I am fine with the, the show ending simply because the source material is done. Uh, I enjoyed the show. I enjoyed the book, but, uh, usually if, uh, TV or movies, try to continue a story after the source material ends very often the the results are not that good yeah um, that that's true and yeah. and i think i would rather have it end on a note where i'm like that was good versus they they keep going and they they jump the shark and we we end up with something that just that nobody likes uh so uh, I think I think one of the hardest parts when when doing a, a a story is just knowing when it is time to end it and end it well. And I think if they just end it after the season, like they say they have, 
we can look at it and say, well, you know, the, the the book had this, the show had this, but I like what we got, and we're all, and we're all happy. Um, so I am I'm not upset that they they ended it. Now, one story though that I would like to see into a a a, a movie or show form uh, would probably be uh, Ruthanna Emery's Innsmouth series. Mm. And um, if you're if you're not familiar with those, the the short version is in the shadow of Rensmith at the end, the the locals are basically carted off to camps somewhere. And the uh, the series follows a pair of siblings who were children at the time and grew up in um, an internment camp uh, and then were released after the end of the Second World War. Uh, So they basically grew up in these camps with their kind of adopted Japanese family because in the early 40s, a bunch of Japanese people were suddenly dropped in there. And they end up returning to Arkham and basically at the request of the the government because they're worried that the the Russians are trying to get a hold of some of the uh, artifacts from Innsmouth. And I, I enjoyed that series very well. Uh, her mastery of the mythos is incredible. Uh, so it, I think instead of continuing with, with uh, just Lovecraft Country, if we were to then go into a different author that's taken a very modern approach to, to that mythology and expanded on it, uh, I would, I'd like to see what, what it would look like uh, with her story which has two novels and a award-winning novella that all started it. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm on uh, Amazon looking for the books, but I would love to see that into a TV series. It, uh, it was uh, Winter Tide was the first one. I'm a sucker for almost anything set in a good historical setting anyways, but if you add the mythos, that's even better. So we really have enjoyed and so thankful for, for, for coming on to our show. Uh, was there any, first of all, people who are listening here, where can they where can they listen to more of you? Well, um, Seth and I host the Modern Mythos podcast. Um, I'm still working on trying to get it uh, uh, distributed out to all of the uh, various podcasting uh, locations. But one of the things that uh, Seth does for our show, and I so thank him for this, is he also makes it available on YouTube. And so just type in Modern Mythos in the search bar in uh, YouTube? Yep. Yep. Excellent. Even a Luddite like me can do that. But uh, we'll we'll provide links that you can share in in your show notes to your uh, listeners on how they can get to our uh, website, our RSS uh, site, and uh, the YouTube site. Oh, and our Facebook page as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we will definitely post all of those. Any other projects that you feel, uh, that you can share with us? Uh, for me, outside of just my normal YouTube channel, uh, no current projects at the moment that I'm allowed to talk about. So, so, so no non-classified projects. Pretty much. I knew the government was talking to you about that UFO thing, but oh, we won't yeah. go into details on that. <laughs> they got me on speed dial for it. Yes. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, and we will definitely have you back on the show again if you guys can be available, especially maybe before, but definitely by spring se- uh, season, so you guys too can hear the 
hear the the goats and the lambs in the living room. And for those three people that have been cursing me the whole time they're listening this, yes, I remember the anthology show that was hosted by Boris Karloff and included, among other things, uh, Pigeons from Hell was called Thriller. I, I remember that. So there's there's at least three people out there cursing my name and my prosperity over that one. Awesome. Awesome. Thriller. I, I'll look for Thriller on YouTube and see if it, I can find the Pigeons from Hell episode. Uh, it's, it, it, is, it is amazing. It, it really is good. Hey, thank you so much, guys. And like I said, I hope we get to have you back on soon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. And we're back. Hey, we hope you liked that interview as much as we liked being part of it. So, Dave. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do we got going on next week for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos? Well, so we're still planning on some things, uh-huh. but we are hoping that we are going to have um, scheduled um, Ken Hyde, I believe, is our next guest. Ken Hyde, yeah. I'm going to be talking to Ken Hyde, hopefully. And, yeah, we're going to be talking about ACLO and the, the language. And uh, maybe... So, so you want to hear a Ken Hyde story that I never told him? Oh, go for it. So, so, and I've met him a couple times. I know sure. he's a lot closer to you, but I met him a couple times at, yeah. uh, at the Cthulhu cons and uh-huh. stuff. But yeah, when I lived in California, when I was sort of like, eh, you know, not really depressed, but you know, just sort of out of it, yeah. I would read his suppressed transmissions, mm-hmm. which are his high weirdness for GURP stories. Oh, that's yeah. how I would cheer myself up. That's so. That's thank cool. you, Ken. I never told you that story. Nice. I'll have to pass that on to him. <laughs> All Very right. Good, yeah. And uh, yeah, up up next, uh, we have a little bit of the book of the month and it's going more into natural disasters. I don't have the title on me right now, but it will be in the show notes. So thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Support the people we talk about. Show them you love the P- Cthulhu Mythos. If you like what we're talking about, reach out to these people. If you have something that you want to talk about, that you want us to talk about, let us know. If you have a book, let us know. We are here to help promote spookiness, the Cthulhu mythos, cosmic horror, and everything in between. Thank you again. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your ma. Tell your pa. Dave, you already know, so I don't have to tell you. Not that you're my ma or pa, but I just want to say thank you again, Dave, for joining me and helping everyone here. And everyone, oh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, everyone have a good one, and we'll see you next I time. I am as pleased to help you as a goat is eating raisins. Whoa, that's pretty high praise there, Dave. <laughs> All right, everyone. Uh, we love you, and we'll talk to you next time. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby Chapter 3 Periodic Winds Earth has each year her resurrection hours when the spring stirs within her and the powers of life revive, the sleeping zephyrs rouse, the blushing orchards clothe their naked boughs, the swallow skims above the lakelet's verge. Swift summer speeds with fire in every vein and autumn's glories crimson hill and plain. Then warmth and life from nature take their flight and winter robes her in a shroud of white, while mournful Boreas chants her funeral dirge.
End quote. So the seasons tread their ceaseless round in the temperate zones, and to a certain degree in the colder regions of the earth. But when we examine the change of seasons in the tropical world, we find a state of things so different that we are at once led to inquire the reason. And it will be found primarily in certain periodical winds. When the sun is north of the equator, that is, while our northern summer is in progress, India enjoys a steady sea wind from the southwest, which brings a rainy season to the corresponding coasts of Hindostan and farther India. When the sun returns to the south, the winds set in from the opposite direction, coming down across the great upland plateau of Central Asia, sometimes called, from its immense height and extent, the roof of the world. These periodic winds are called monsoons, a corruption of the Arabic word musum, season. They are in reality a modification of the trade winds. A glance at a map will show that the northern half of the great Indian Ocean is enclosed by land masses as no other large body of water is. Consequently, while in the southern section the southeast trade is present, the northeast trade of the northern part is so modified by the surrounding land areas as to almost entirely lose its distinctive character. Hence, most tropical regions have, properly speaking, but two seasons, the rainy and the dry. As the clouds swept in meet with an intensely heated region, the trade never chills them sufficiently to produce snow except in extremely elevated regions. This is the direct cause of the monsoons. During the northern summer, southern Asia, being under the rays of the vertical sun, becomes intensely heated, and the cooler and denser air of the adjacent ocean and of southern Africa flows towards it, producing the southwest monsoon, which lasts from April or May to September or October. The time of its beginning and its close varies in different latitudes, according to the time at which the sun is vertical in each. During the southern summer, southern Africa being under the vertical sun and intensely heated, the cooler air of the surrounding seas and of southern Asia flows towards it. This produces the northeast monsoon, which lasts from October or November to April. This monsoon is, in fact, only the regular northeast trade wind somewhat intensified. A similar exchange takes place between Asia and Australia, but it is less marked, owing, perhaps, to the great islands lying between these continents. The period of transition of the monsoons in spring and autumn is marked by sudden and violent gales and terrific thunderstorms. Destructive hurricanes also are of frequent occurrence. This corresponds with the period of equinoctial storms in higher latitudes. There are now monsoon belts in the Atlantic, along the coast of Africa and of Brazil, also on the Pacific coasts of North and South America. But the phenomena they exhibit are of a much less striking character. On the African coast in general, the winds blow from sea to land in summer, from land to sea in winter. On the Brazilian, the wind is from the northeast in summer, while in winter the southeast trade resumes its sway. 
the monsoons of the pacific coast of america blow from the northwest and north during the southern summer from the southwest and south during the northern the regular trade winds make itself so strongly felt in northern brazil which is unusually level that a boat can sail almost as rapidly up the swift current of the amazon as it can row down and humboldt records that he found it of great strength at the foot of the eastern slope of the andes another modification of the northeast trade is found in the etesian winds of greece and the adjacent archipelago this is a true intermittent trade blowing only in the daytime however and lasting from july to september the cool air of the peninsula rushes toward the extremely heated regions of the mediterranean and north africa somewhat similar are the northers or blizzards of our western states by the laws already given it is seen that northerly winds can prevail in any region only when some region further south is unusually heated now the northern portion of america may be roughly compared to a trough the cold polar current sets to the southward across the continent and is turned to the east by the rocky mountain range giving it a general southeast course hence when the southern summer is in progress our prevailing winds are from the northwest and when the heated portion of the world is north of the equator we have the return trade giving us as our prevailing wind that from the southwest when our return trade is unusually prolonged we have a late fall and if the southern summer is unusually warm we have the polar current longer than usual and a late spring in consequence the polar current seldom makes its presence felt beyond the texan plains though occasionally it reaches the mexican plateau or sweeps across the gulf to the antilles a similar cold wind from central france toward the riviera is locally known as the mistral the cold winds from the south which in crossing the plains of patagonia are turned eastward by the andes are called in uruguay the pamperos as their direction causes the popular belief that they originate in the pampas or grassy plains in malta the cold wind becomes known as the Vregal. in the adriatic sea it is the tramontana in trieste and dalmatia it is the bora in new zealand the corresponding cold blast comes from the south and is known as the buster when loaded with drifting snow as in the blizzard of the united states the cold wind of the yenisei valley in asia is locally called the purga in the steppes of central asia it is the bura eastern asia receives its prevailing cold current from the northwest while western asia and europe receive their cold wave from the northeast there being no range of mountains as in america to deflect the current as the polar currents are disposed to follow the continents having their origin in arctic lands while for a similar reason the return trades reach their extremes in the ocean hence lines drawn through the places which possess the same mean annual temperature reach a higher latitude at sea than on land these are the chief periodical winds of long periods there is one other class to be noted the diurnal land and sea breezes 
these occur along all coasts whether in the zone of trades or of variable winds but the phenomenon is more strongly marked in the tropical regions and in the summer of the temperate latitudes because of the greater difference in the temperature of land and sea by day and by night during the hottest part of the day the air over the land frequently reaches a temperature of a hundred degrees fahrenheit and even more while that over the sea rarely rises above eighty degrees during the night the land radiates its heat with such rapidity that towards morning its atmosphere may be from ten degrees to fifteen degrees colder than that of the sea soon after sunrise the land being warmer than the sea a sea breeze sets in which increases in force until about three o'clock when the difference of temperature is greatest it then gradually diminishes until about sunset when the temperature of the land and sea having become equal the atmosphere is at rest the calm continuing for an hour or more soon the land becomes cooler than the sea and a gentle breeze from the former sets in it increases in force as the night advances becoming strongest a little before morning when the temperature of the land is lowest after which it rapidly dies away and is succeeded by a calm to be soon replaced by the sea breeze one other species of variable wind is to be noticed the hot dry dust-laden blast from desert regions such occur more or less periodically and are known by different names in different localities tom moore has told us that love's witchery on the heart is quote, like the wind of the south o'er the summer lute blowing that hushed all its music and withered its flame end quote. the reference is to the simoom of syria and arabia one who has not experienced this wind can have little idea of its oppressiveness apt to come at any hour during the hottest months of the year with a temperature so great that a piece of silver exposed to it becomes hot enough to blister the flesh and laden with the impalpable dust of the desert vegetation is scorched and withered by it and animals flee from it as from the pestilence it may last but a short time it may endure several days at the first indication of its approach people flee to their houses doors and windows are shut and every crevice that could allow any dust to enter is tightly stuffed while the wind lasts no one ventures out such unfortunate animals as happen to be overtaken by it have literally to struggle for their lives the wind is not steady but comes in fitful gusts sometimes differing as much as twenty degrees in temperature the streets are deserted and were they otherwise a person could hardly be seen at a few yards distance hours pass that implacable enemy the dust sifts in at unknown chinks by degrees it covers everything valuable lace and tapestry are nearly ruined you put on a skull-cap yet it penetrates your hair it finds its way beneath the garments to the skin producing distressing dryness and roughness the lips parch and crack the eyes are red and inflamed you drink as if famished and gasp for breath you are excessively irritable you reach the verge of complete nervous prostration at length the ordeal is over you creep into the street to find your neighbors looking like corpses some it may be 
actually dead from nervous exhaustion. Dead birds and animals lie on the earth. It is a case of the survival of the fittest. You pluck a leaf from a neighboring tree. It crumbles to dust in your grasp. Such are the effects of an unusually protracted wind, even when most favorably situated to encounter it. But if a caravan be overtaken by such in the desert, happy are they who escape. The camels kneel and thrust their noses into the sand, against each other, into a pack of goods, anywhere, to avoid breathing that poisonous blast. The men throw themselves upon the ground behind the camels and muffle their heads in their garments. The storm is at hand, perchance attended by whirling columns of sand. You raise your head. A thick, dun-coloured cloud flies at you. A heat as of red-hot iron, it seems, holds you in its choking grasp. You find your way to your water bottle and drink deeply. The lurid sun turns the sweeping columns of sand to pillars of fire. Superstitious fear seizes your Arab comrades. Gradually the storm passes on. The men pick themselves up and endeavor to shake the irritating dust and sand from out the folds of their clothing, and the party resumes its way, happy that they are not numbered among the dead, whose bones are bleaching by the way. Tales are not wanting of great caravans completely overwhelmed by the sandstorms of the desert. These storms are met with in their great severity in Egypt and Arabia. In Egypt, this wind is called the Kamsin, or 50, referring to the period of 50 days, the latter part of April, May, and early June, when they may be expected. They never blow through the entire season, rarely so long as 15 days at a time. In Arabia, the Simum may travel from the center of the peninsula toward the point of the compass. The Kamsin of Egypt blows from the southwest. Winds of the same character cross the Mediterranean. In Spain, the wind is known as the Solano, or Levanta, or Levesh. In Sicily and Italy, it is the Sirocco. The distressing dryness is somewhat modified by the journey across the Mediterranean. The same wind in Syria is called Samiel and a similar wind which blows from the Sahara southwest to the Guinea coast is called the Harmattan. In California, a similar dry hot wind blows from the interior toward the coast during the hot season and is called the desert wind. Such occasional hot blasts are experienced in southeastern Dakota, coming from the Badlands, or sandy and rocky wastes along the upper Missouri River. All these periodical or varying winds may be very properly, from their time and character, be called the season winds of the earth, as another means of distinction from the constant trades, as they in part bring changes of season, and in part are brought that way. Into the question of climate and seasons, one other element enters, of especial importance in regard to those disturbances of the regular winds, which we call storms. That factor is the quantity of moisture in the atmosphere and the consequent rainfall or snowfall of a region. Without this element, the phenomenal disturbances known as tornadoes would hardly occur, or, if they did, there would be greater difficulty in ascertaining their approach. 
water in its vapour state is but three-fifths the weight of the air and in consequence rapidly rises this evaporation as it is called goes on at all times even when the water is frozen a very thin sheet of ice hung in the open air will finally disappear even though the temperature be always below freezing now all the phenomena of rain snow and hail that are brought by different seasons in different climes depend upon a single simple law that warm air can hold a much greater quantity of vapour than cold air the amount of moisture that may be held in suspension at different temperatures is shown in a following table this gives a second reason why storms of wind and rain closely follow extremely hot weather now as the vapour is so much lighter than the air their mixture must also be lighter so any unusual amount of moisture is at once detected by the barometer an instrument for measuring the pressure of the atmosphere if the air grow moister and therefore lighter the barometer falls a storm is approaching since cold air can retain but little moisture if a warm moist current be chilled it must lose part of its vapour which at once falls to the earth as rain if the cold be somewhat greater the moisture is crystallized into snow greeley's observations at fort conger show that varied as are the forms of snow crystals those that fall during any particular storm are invariably of the same types even though they may be collected from localities widely removed from each other all crystals of snow are hexagonal in plan but there is much variety in detail the laws that produce one variety at one time and a second at another are not yet known the subject of hail is a particularly perplexing one to the meteorologist hailstones are more or less spherical in form and are made of alternate layers of soft opaque ice and hard clear ice it is evident that they must acquire this structure by being whirled about between clouds of different temperature and density some have supposed that they are formed in a whirlwind whose axis is horizontal but for the present we must be content with lord dundreary's explanation for quote, it is one thing of those things which no feller can understand end quote. raindrops from a great height are larger than those from below for they increase as they pass through the vapour masses as the warmest currents are also the highest it will at once be understood why warm and tropical rains fall in large drops while drizzling rains mists and fogs are characteristics of cold regions and cold seasons the masses of more or less condensed vapour in the upper air currents are what are known as clouds their various forms and appearance are shown in the cut on the dash page the cirrus and cirrocumulus clouds are the highest are mostly in the altitudes of perpetual frost and are supposed often to consist of minute ice crystals in temperate latitudes they are usually formed in and move with the upper air current or return trade from the tropical regions the cumulus clouds are characteristic of the tropics and of the summer days in middle latitudes their height depending upon the relative humidity of the air they are formed by local ascending currents which carry a large amount of vapour into the cooler upper air 
there the vapours are condensed and are gradually heaped up into those heavy masses of sharply defined clouds which look like vast snowy mountains their base is horizontal and marks the height at which the dew point is reached and condensation begins the accumulation of vapours is often so great that these clouds form a column several thousand feet high in this case the difference in the temperature and the electrical conditions of the upper and lower portions is such that electrical discharges take place accompanied by condensation of a portion of the cloud forming a thunderstorm stratus clouds are most frequently seen in the morning or evening and are always low they are formed by the descent of the higher clouds and vapours of midday into the lower air as the temperature decreases they are more frequent in winter and summer than in the intermediate seasons the nimbus cloud is more dense and heavy than the others which may all be transformed into the nimbus by a diminution of temperature it is of a dark leaden hue changing into grey this is the most common form of cloud in polar latitudes and during the cold season it is the most frequent of the temperate zones if a moist current cross a mountain range it loses its moisture in the cold region and growing narrower as it descends the other slope presents the phenomena of a warm dry wind from the mountains thus the wind that brings rain to norway gives warm fair weather to sweden of the same character are the hot winds of switzerland called fern winds and the chinook winds which blow from the eastward into idaho washington and western montana similar winds occur occasionally in south africa australia new zealand and peru these hot winds must not be confounded with the hot and poisonous winds from desert regions described before such in fine are the noted varying intermittent or periodic winds however uncertain they may appear at first thought they are obedient to the same unchanging laws that bind the universe into one harmonious whole no doubt the ancients if they had been acquainted with their office would have personified them as the nymphs of the seasons but knowing naught of the wonderful immutable laws that bind them they could only say to each quote, we know not whence thou comest or whither goest when round our homes thy wizard blast thou blowest in eternal law and harmony they found only endless confusion and wild caprice man interpreted nature by man yet they are the angels of the seasons these air spirits sent by an all-wise providence to bring the rain and the snow and the sunshine and storm in their season to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater that while man shall dwell on earth seed time and harvest and summer and winter may not cease so they wander clothing the tropics with emerald cloaks of strangest beauty and robing the poles with ermine and crystal painting with rainbow tints the autumn leaves and touching with virgin blush the orchards in spring in all things obeying the decree of him who hath set the seasons in order and made everything beautiful in its time End of chapter 3
Thank you for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This episode was brought to you by patrons and listeners like you. You can go to the show notes and find out how to support the show, how to buy t-shirts, stickers, and all that kind of fun stuff. If you want to get on the show, if you've got something you want to let the world know about that's Cthulhu, mythos-related, or tangential, or tentacle, I don't know, uh, contact Dave Heath. David Heath will be the person to talk to. If you've got, you know, uh, audio that you want to send in, I'm the person to talk to. If you've got video, if you've got uh, images, if you've got stickers, not stickers, um, if you have illustrations, I've got stickers. Contact me. Thank you so much. PGTTCM.com.